Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Polygreens podcast. I'm Joe Swartz from Amp Hydro, along with my friend and colleague, Nick Greens of the Nick Greens Grow team. And here we are in year number two. Can you believe it, Nick? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's let's start this year off good. And uh, I think you said it. You said it well in the text. Let's let's do a, let's do an episode about uh, about tomatoes, hydroponically grown tomatoes. Um, you know, I've been I've been getting um, a lot of emails and people reaching out on social media and, and they really like um, hearing about different crop production techniques. You know, the guests are great. We have plenty more guests coming up, but but really uh, the most questions by far all relate to growing issues, uh, growing culinary herbs, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, you name it. So, so today what we're going to do is we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. We're going to start walking uh, you through some different uh, production techniques and technologies for some of your favorite crops, maybe some oddball crops you haven't even thought of. So today we're going to, we're going to dive right in. We're going to start growing, talking about growing hydroponic tomatoes. Now, when I first got in the business way back when, back in the early 1980s, there were a fair number of uh, hydroponic, uh, smaller to mid-scale hydroponic growing facilities all around uh, where I am. And uh, they've kind of gone away. And what we've seen now with hydroponically grown tomatoes being really the number one crop being grown in controlled environment ag here in North America and such huge volumes and some really big growers out there, you know, putting out some amazing product. Some growers have started to steer away from that. They they feel that, you know, why am I going to try to compete with some of the, the big operations? And, and I understand that, but... And are you speaking of like Mighty Vines and stuff like that in the Midwest too? Sure. As well, Ma- Mass Genardi, Sunset, uh, Moochie Farms. I mean, these are huge farms and all amazing growers. Howlings out on the West Coast, uh, amazing growers, phenomenal crops. And so when you go to the grocery stores now, you see them all over. They have tremendous uh, shelf presence and, and again, really excellent quality. So many people tend to, to look away then to, to other crops. And I think that's a mistake sometimes because really one of the, the great opportunities in controlled environment ag is small scale localized agriculture. So if I, you know, and I've grown tomatoes for years, we haven't grown them here at our farm for a number of years um, in Massachusetts. But if I were to go back into tomato production, I'm not looking to try to compete with mass Trinardis. What I'm looking to do is on a local scale, whether we're talking farm stands through our CSA program, ordering online, where we're selling product to the local community, we have the opportunity to grow really high quality specialty tomatoes, and we're able to harvest them really at the peak of freshness. I mean, obviously, the large scale producers that are shipping out great distances, that's one of the things they don't have the opportunity really to do because the shipping is still uh, an issue. And so the, the grower has an opportunity. So for growers out there, if you are growing uh, again, selling um, right from your farm, whether you're selling at a farmer's market, wherever wherever you have an opportunity where your product is getting into the hands of consumers very quickly, you have tremendous opportunity for some of the fruiting crops that you know, a lot of growers have started to steer away from. And tomatoes really are, are, are the best in terms of everyone has, you know, one of those tomato stories. They just love, you know, the tomatoes they grew in their backyard or they just love the tomatoes they got from this 
grower at the farmer's market. And that's really a great opportunity for you local growers to, to shine. And so we're going to get into today some of the cultural practices to growing high-quality tomatoes. And again, it's with the understanding that what you're looking to do is satisfy a, a local specialty market where you are growing the highest quality pro, uh, possible and the freshest. There is nothing like harvesting a tomato, whether it's in your garden or the greenhouse or wherever, that's dead ripe on the vine. You know, most commercial growers have to harvest um, with some immaturity, uh, some green, some pink, um, not to full uh, ripeness. And there's a, a loss of quality there and, and to a certain degree, possibly loss of nutritional value as well. So, so again, great opportunity to... Um, to develop and, and cultivate markets. And, and just to show you uh, the, the power of tomatoes, especially for people who really enjoy their tomatoes, I had a relative that uh, lived for a number of years in Anchorage, Alaska, and they came up to visit one summer and, and I brought them a, a box of tomatoes uh, from the greenhouse and they took them back with them. And they had neighbors, and these are people you know, with good disposable income, they went nuts and they were asking me to ship them tomatoes. They said <laughs> they didn't care what it would cost. Uh, they would pay anything we wanted because they just couldn't get high quality, fresh tomatoes. And they really, when someone loves a tomato, they will pay whatever they want, whatever you want for them. And, um, and you know, it didn't make sense for us logistically to try to do that, but it, it illustrates the, the power of that high quality crop. I know growers all over the, the U.S. and Canada who sell fresh picked tomatoes, um, picked completely ripe from their greenhouse this morning, and they're selling them today at the farmer's market, and people just love them. And so when you are looking at, at your crop selection, especially if you're doing vine crops, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, don't overlook this opportunity. So we're going to dig in. We're going to talk about um, really from start to finish. And, and we, we will, in future episodes, we're going to talk about peppers, cucumbers, eggplant, specialty crops like lufa sponges. Actually, we just finished up a crop um, for anybody watching on YouTube. Uh, I have in my hands right here, I have a lufa sponge that we just finished. These are uh, grown. They're, they're very similar to cucumbers in terms of their productivity, and they look a lot like giant cucumbers on steroids, and they grow really well in the vine crop system. So when we're talking you gotta about- send me one for, uh, I like to take a bath with it sometime. I certainly will. I still have people look at them and go, these come from the ocean, don't they? I'm like, no, they're <laughs> gourds, and we grow them in the greenhouse. So um, the, the, the two systems that we talk about really are vine crop systems where we're growing the fruiting, large fruiting crops, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, et cetera. And then the leaf crop systems for lettuce, culinary herbs, baby greens, et cetera. And those two systems, you can really grow pretty much anything within those two systems for the most part. And so when we talk about vine crops, obviously today, today we're going to focus on tomatoes, but you can do any of those other vine crops. And we'll do shows where we talk more specifically about cucumbers, peppers, et cetera, and, uh, and the great opportunities that are there as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, we, we listen, we appreciate all of the input and we listen to you. So when people say, I want to know more about growing tomatoes, we're going to turn well. I think we're a good way to start is let's talk about a, a um, the method, right? Let's talk about yep. the method, the different methods and uh, 
I would like to know your your favorite too. Like that's I think uh, the audience too as well would want to know your favorite. Okay, so we got uh, aeroponics. We got uh, NFT, which is nutrient film technique. It's not NFT where you can buy it and uh, uh, hold it as an asset. Please don't confuse that. I, now I, I would Google if you press NFT, you don't get nutrient film technique no more. Disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, it's gone away. There's no way that you have to you have to actually put nutrient film technique now. Um, okay, so then you got ebb and flow, mm-hmm. right? Then you got the hydroponic, uh, the drip system, right? Where you drip and either probably holding in a rock wool cube or something or some other type of uh, medium. And then you got the deep water culture, right? Which is, I hardly ever see the deep water culture in the biz. I don't know about you, but I hardly ever see that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of different ways to grow. Um, everyone's got their favorite. So for me, uh, um, well, when we look at tomatoes or peppers or cucumbers, these are large frame fruiting crops. In other words, the, the crops themselves, the plants themselves are physically very large. They tend to be quite heavy when they're loaded with fruit. They grow for a long period of time, the, you know, anywhere from six months to 15, 16 months. They, um, they go through several stages. If you're growing a head of lettuce, that lettuce is in its vegetative state the whole time. It's trying to produce green biomass, plant material. When we look at tomatoes, we have a vegetative state. We have a reproductive or a generative state. So now we have to shift them over to fruiting. So there's a lot of different things going on there. So when we look at what type of system we want to use, we've got to look at some of those factors. One, of course, is is the ability to deliver water and nutrients in the most effective way, to offer physical support for the plants. We don't just plant our tomatoes and let them just grow all over the ground. We train them specifically up on a trellising system, which we'll talk about. And and so the the plants have to be physically managed and supported. Um, And then the ability to control the environment around them. That means to to properly move air, to to actually physically work in the crop. These are crops that require specific maintenance uh, techniques like pruning. And you've been in in the greenhouse in the peak of uh, the peak of noon uh, when the sun is super, super hot. I don't care what kind of fan system you have in your tomato house. The tomatoes love that warmth. And God, when you're in between the canopy, man, you try to go as low as possible. The lower you go, the cooler it gets. <laughs> <laughs> and the tomato, yeah, the tomato the greenhouse is always a good place to hide too. And the tomato vines are 10 feet above your head and you're tucked away somewhere. It's a, it's a good place. No, I didn't say that. Don't ever repeat. But that. it's a good, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> scouting moment too. At, at all the 40 foot uh, long uh, stems on, uh, you know. Yeah, when we talk about pruning, that's going to be another factor. So anyway, so all of those those factors go into our selection of, of uh, growing system. So for me personally, and I think from a, a, a sustainability um, as standpoint, as well as effectiveness, we want to start with a recirculating system. So any types of the older school drain to waste systems where you have maybe a plant growing either in soil or into some type of soilless mix where nutrients and water are dripped in through a drip system and then drain out to waste. That Those, are, those days are over. Um, obviously, from an environmental standpoint, that's not a good way to grow, but it's also not a good way to manage your water, your nutrients, and, and your growth. So so we want to start with looking at some type of system where we can apply nutrients and water and biologicals, and we want to be able to recover them. So 
in most commercial tomato operations, we have two, di two different types of systems. One is a container system, most commonly known as a Dutch bucket system. So this is uh, a container, uh, looks very much like a pail, and basically it contains a growing media. And we're going to talk about growing media in a second. And in that medium, because the, the tomato plants are very large uh, crops, they have extensive root systems. You don't want to just, you know, you, they have been, uh, I've seen NFT tomato systems. I've seen aeroponic tomato systems and they're a value to both. But I think a media-based system tends to produce higher quality crops. Um, the, the growing media that you use, we can talk about cocoa fiber. I think you get a better root production on the Dutch oh, bucket with, uh, with a medium in there as well. Yeah. And the, and the fact that you can't see the roots tends to lead people to sometimes not pay as much attention to the roots. Oh, you, you ever really pull one of those plants out of that Dutch bucket? You check, oh, yeah. see everything's entangled already. You don't even see the, 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 the medium no more because it's all yeah. roots. Yeah. And, and a robust root system, that's the foundation of water and nutrient absorption. So if you're skimping on your root systems, well, you're you're losing out in terms of quality and yield. So again, we always want to focus on what the plants need. So the, the Dutch bucket system, and now, and now the, the bucket systems are designed to be recirculating. So they have um, the growing media, they have drip irrigation, where water and nutrients are basically applied through uh, a drip irrigation system to the top of the growing media, nutrients and, and water and- uh, and, the, and that can also be measured out by scales these, these days as well, right? There's could be scales under the Dutch buckets as well, where they're measuring and calculating exactly on how much water you're using. Yep. Yeah. There's a, how much water nutrients to add is always a, a hot topic. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's different mechanisms for uh, applying irrigation, whereas kind of the old school method is just to, you know, intuitively apply as much water as you, or, or much nutrient solution as you feel. But we definitely have much more uh, sophisticated ways. And, and obviously the weight of the growing medium is a great way to determine what its moisture content is. And when we talk about irrigation, we'll talk about a couple of those strategies that even on a small scale make sense for people. So we want to keep in mind that when we look, we talk about a lot of the higher level of technology, even if you don't have advanced equipment, a lot of the, the concepts of why we use certain technologies are valid regardless of your scale. So all the things that we talk about, we're going to talk about high levels of automation and sophistication all the way down to very basic hand uh, techniques. And again, it's all focused on what the plants need. So, so the, the, type of technology that you, you we use is is in some ways irrelevant but more is the the process that we're following so let's continue the the, the thing and just keep it uh the dutch bucket system and yep. then we'll go through the whole process with that and yeah, then uh, sure yeah. yeah so the so the bucket system obviously um as water and nutrients and beneficial microbes are added to the to the growing media uh, you want to have excess flowing back out again so we have the collection system within the, the Dutch bucket system that's reclaiming the water and nutrients. And then the, the nutrient is, is filtered, treated if need be, adjusted if need be, and then uh, oxygenated and reused. So again, from a sustainability standpoint, as far as water usage um, in terms of overall root health, uh, effectiveness of your irrigation and water. And would you and, say 80% to 95% of the water is being reclaimed or, or is it less than that? Because I know well, there's some claims all over the internet. If you do search or you try to do research, 
Some people claim 95%, you know, more water efficient. Like, what does that mean? I mean, what, what does that mean? That's what yeah. I kind of, I guess what the question I'm asking. Yeah. Well, based on the age of the plants and the climate that they're growing in, the plants are going to be using, tomato plants are notorious. They're, they're very heavy feeders. They use a lot of water and nutrients. So a lot of that goes right into the plant. And the, the, the concept of the recirculating system basically means that we're not losing any water and nutrients back out into the environment. We're not leaching. Uh, there's no overflow, no runoff. So basically, whatever the plant doesn't use goes back in the system and gets reused again. So it's again a close, just like an NFT system. For so it's a more up. sustainable system than that kind of absolutely, yeah, yeah. In terms of protecting the environment, because we're not putting any material back in the environment, it's all staying contained within the system. But then also from a conservation standpoint, we're using substantially less water. You know, out- outdoors when we irrigate, most of that water that we irrigate tends to leach down into the soil before being caught by the crops or sometimes run off. There's a lot more evaporation, uh, whether and we're transpiring too, from the tomatoes got try to go in there in the morning yeah. and see the transpire all over the place. Yeah. Like, and that's sometimes it's raining inside there. <laughs> well, the plants, and, and that's when we have to talk about proper environmental management. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Don't want that. Cause but I've been the, into some tomatoes house. So it was raining. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I hope you talk to them about fixing their environment. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they didn't have no, no, no vent venting, nothing. You know, I was like, where's the vent? What vent? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. So, um, yeah, so, so basically everything that the, the plants need and are using, we're managing much more effectively in a, a system like this. And of course, because we're not irrigating or you know, using rainwater where water is going all over the ground, we're, we're very selectively applying that water and nutrient solution right where the plants need it. So we also don't have the evaporation. A lot of whether it's rainwater or irrigation water outside, a lot of that actually uh, evaporates as well. So it's going back into the environment. And so, you know, the earth's closed loop system is still capturing it. But if you're paying for water or you're paying for equipment to apply water, it's being lost. So again, in a controlled environment system, we can really manage that. And, and that's a really effective system. It's simple. The buckets are very easy to clean. We use what we call smart pots, which are a fiber pot that fits and a inside. A lot of that the material pot. of the, uh, a lot of the medium reused as well. A lot of the perlite yes. and uh, rock wool as well, right? The rock wool could be reused as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rock wool has become, especially because, especially in Canada, have been used so much. Disposal had become a problem. So as we start looking. I, mean, at I, I guess I didn't mean rock wool. I meant uh, uh, hydroton. The clay okay. pellets. What, yeah, are, the, what other pellet. term is what? What other term do they have? Well, there, I mean, cocoa fiber and coconut fiber is, is or core is probably the most commonly used now, especially the coarser grades. Uh, some growers use straight cocoa fiber. Some use a mix of cocoa fiber, vermiculite, and perlite. And when we start talking about root production, we're going to talk about some of the. Qualities. Some do a mix. Some okay. some will put a, a clay pellets on the bottom, mm-hmm. perlite on the top. Our mixture of perlite with the clay pellets, you know, I've seen multiple different versions uh, uh, growers do different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the hydroponic system to produce the tomatoes in terms of irrigation and nutrient management in a closed loop system is essentially the plant growing in an inert growing medium being irrigated with a small drip irrigation type structure and then all the water and nutrients being recaptured and reused. And that's, that's the basis 
uh, of any of those systems. And so the Dutch bucket system is probably the simplest and most common, especially on a small scale uh, being used. It's very versatile. You can grow a number of different crops. I grew the loofah sponges. In the so would Dutch that be bucket. categorized as the hydroponic drip system, I guess? That would yeah, be labeled- I, I I think, I think so. that would be labeled as that as well, right? Because it's it technically both, I guess. Dutch bucket hydroponic drip system. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there are still some growers using a drip system where they're just dripping into uh, cocoa, right? Into cocoa that's either just leaching out or going wherever. So the the bucket system allows us to contain it. But again, it is a it is just a drip system. Very very simple. Uh, most of the best systems are all quite simple. I know Usually some the- growers, they're just constantly dripping small amount of drops where mm-hmm. they keep it almost, almost always dryish, you know, like they never get it past 30% or humid, you know, 30% saturation inside this, inside the medium. Yeah. Yeah. Because for root health, there's yes. a number of things going on there. Yeah. But them are the plant nerd nerds, you know, the guys that are like, they watch their plant every second. <laughs> That's good. And, and and I've seen growers with great success with a couple of, you know, very different types of techniques. But again, when you're focusing on the actual function and the needs of the plant, there are many different ways to meet that in some cases. And so, so there's, that's, that's why, you know, the, that's where the art and the science of hydroponics really shines. And, and, and there are certain fundamentals we can never get away from, but some of the techniques that we can use can be quite different and still equally effective. And it could be applied to anything. You apply that technique to soil growing, you know, of outdoors course. as well, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully people have, uh, have listened to us and kind of gotten that common theme over the past year. Well, you know how I really started to understand hydroponics? When I studied a lot of soil growers yeah, and worked with the original soil growers that these soil growers were even knowing what their bug life was. And we, I talked about this many times, you know, those are the type of soil growers I learned from where they're like monitoring their bug life. They're like, yo, we don't have enough uh, butterflies around lately. Uh, Something's going up. Like, what do you mean? You, you noticed that? (laughs) They're watching the ecosystems. Yeah. 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 Totally. But that's the outdoor growers though, you know? Yeah. Well, growing is growing. And if we're growing indoors without soil, then we have to make sure that we're providing exactly what plants are getting from the soil. And so you're right that growers who are managing effective soil production, they're doing exactly the same types of things that we need to be doing. In the in Correct. The but to the water, you know, like yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. They're, they're just feeding the soil, you know, and the soil will do what it needs to do to the plants. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's an that's an argument in the organic uh, community right now. They're saying that, well, field organic production feeds the soil where hydroponics doesn't. Well, what hydroponics really does is it feeds the rooting environment. It feeds the roots and the environment within it, which is essentially the same. Well, we're feeding the water, which the water's carrying it to the root system. So it's kind of the same technique if you word it that way. Uh, yeah, I, I really, I really believe having grown in both soil, uh, you know, where I, I grew up in, and and in hydroponics or controlled environment ag, one of the things that I've really seen is it, it is the same. It's not this artificial where we're just mixing up some kind of inert material and spraying it on the plants. What we're doing is we're creating the exact same ecosystem, living, breathing ecosystem within the root zone, utilizing a nutrient solution rather than the the presence of soil where we may be adding things or, or managing. It's just, it's a different way to do it, but the process is exactly the same. 
because we're not looking to provide anything different than what plants are getting in the soil. Well, most of that organic fertilizers we can use in hydroponic growing. So I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what people are talking about when we're using the same foods. You know, the only difference, like I said, is they're feeding the soil. We're feeding the water. So everyone's got their own ideas. And uh, a lot of us are very strong with our opinions. And so certainly we're always going to never come to full consensus, but it is good to have the discussions and to talk about that. And I've had some, some amazing discussions with people I disagree with. And uh, we've been able to at least understand that really we're, we're looking at the same outcome. And, um, and so to that, to that point, so the, the Dutch bucket system, uh, yeah. a similar so let's system get to the feeding to the feeding side, right? We, we, we know what medium we chose, we know we're using Dutch bucket system. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, now what are, what are we going to do with, uh, do I feed them all at the same time or is there certain roles that need to be fed? What sure. What is a recommendation for somebody that's, that's got a big greenhouse turned out to Dutch buckets? Sure. Okay. Now, and just one quick point is that the Dutch bucket system and large scale facilities, they tend to sometimes use a very similar system called the gutter system, which is a large gutter, which is basically a one piece gutter that runs the length of the greenhouse. And then um, a containment vessel, usually it's a bag with growing media is set on top of that gutter system. And then it's irrigated exactly the same way. And the gutter collects the nutrient in exactly the same way. And it recirculates. So the the only difference between a, a Dutch bucket system and a gutter system really is what's holding the the plant roots. So in a bucket system, the roots are contained within the growing media in that bucket. In a uh, uh, gutter system, there is a, a bag or some other type of container. Usually, it's, it usually it's rock wool, right? About I want to say ninety percent of the the gutter systems that I've seen were all using rock wool. Well, in that's most of most of what I've seen now is actually cocoa fiber. Same okay. slabs, though. They look very much like rock. Oh, so wood. they're cocoa fiber slabs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Wow. wow. Yeah. I heard bamboo's starting to hit the market as well, too. I haven't seen a lot of that yet. I'm very interested to see how some of that shit I heard. Out. I heard the sustainability on the bamboo surpasses all of the other mediums. So that's kind of really, really interesting there. Yeah, it is. The, the growing medium in the, the um, hanging gutter system is generally in these lay flat bags. They're long plastic bags filled with grow medium. And unless you cut one open or, or look into it, a lot of times it's difficult to tell. You know, if you look at the, these lay flat bags, the rock wool bags and the cocoa bags and the perlite bags all look very similar. So you have to kind of go in a little deeper. But I wanted to touch on that, that the, that's a different type of system does exactly the same function on a larger scale. It may be more cost effective where you see these multi-acre ranges they're all grown that way. And again, closed loop, hydroponic recirculating system uh, using an inert growing media. So the same thing, just a different uh, way to get there. So if we're going to talk about the production, let's back way up here and let's start at the very beginning. Let's talk about selecting our seeds and looking at what we're trying to grow. Because I always I always have people come to me and say, well, so not just them. any seed will work. My grandpa had these heirloom seeds, Joe. Uh, is, is there a way that I can have uh, my grandpa's seeds uh, be sure. be in the grocery stores overnight? You certainly can. And I know growers that are always uh, developing heirloom variety seeds in uh, production in their uh, in their their facilities. One of the challenges is, is that like with all of uh, controlled environment ag now, the real exciting developments in genetics. So we have certain crops and varieties that will do very well in a greenhouse environment in terms of 
quality, disease resistance, productivity. Um, if for anybody watching on YouTube, I've got a nice cluster of large beefsteak tomatoes hanging behind my head. And Nick is in front of a very large hanging gutter system with real high quality tomatoes on it. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to, to do. So, so we can grow anything. We can grow, uh, I've grown heirloom, I've grown brandy wine and Cherokee tomatoes. The challenge with- you want to be the- consistent and you want to serve uh, the community uh, consistently, then you want to buy a specific seed then? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to look at a couple of things. So one of what your end product is, obviously, if you're growing tomatoes, people think of the large beefsteak tomatoes and that's great. And there are a lot of varieties that are specific to greenhouse production that are very productive, produce high quality fruit, large uniform pr- fruit. People want large for a beefsteak. People want large, you know, blemish free, good colored, good size and shape uh, tomatoes. And as a grower, you want ones that are very productive, uh, produce good flavored tomatoes, have disease resistance, um, and in many cases, longevity. Some varieties don't do uh, very well after a while. So those are those are factors as a grower you have to look at. And so once you make those determinations, you have to stop and also look at, well, what are the types of tomatoes we're growing? Are we growing cherry tomatoes? I love growing sun gold cherry tomatoes and our markets love them. So um, you have to look at, at varieties for the not only the, the varieties, but the types. Plum tomatoes, tomatoes on the vine, the clustered tomatoes. Um, those are all different types of tomatoes. And fortunately, there's a lot of great Your classic beefsteak, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, companies doing great jobs with uh, developing varieties. I mean, there've been a lot and of there's new ones coming out every year, right? There's yeah, constantly really coming good. out with, with new ones Absolutely. that resist even better than the last year ones. We were growing trust tomatoes way back in the day when it was a new experimental variety and trust became kind of the the standard in the industry for beefsteak tomatoes for a very long time. And, you know, it's, it's already been surpassed by other varieties now. So, so yeah, so always growing varieties that, you know, will perform a certain way, but then always trialing new, new things. Why, why would some varieties have like N95? What's that? Or just like a, a, they'll have a letter and a number. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. I was wondered. Yeah. I was wondered. Like, was this the ninety-five try that it that you know? <laughs> yep. And and all the varieties they give them names, but and we've done a lot of trial at our farm for different seed companies, and they always have some elaborate number. You know, this variety is X nine five five one two three, and we we work on it, and then they decide to go to market with it, and they call it. Fred and it's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. You know? But we know so, it as N five five five. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the naming and the identification um, is, is different, and some seeds, you know, are uh, you know there there still are some open pollinated, which are the heirloom or legacy varieties, and of course, most everything now is um, grown and hybridized through advanced breeding, and um, you know, it's really a, a great uh, you know the, the there's never been a better time for so pellet like, pellet pellet pelletized or not? So with tomatoes, um, I prefer to, to use the raw seed. Tomato seeds are a little different than so lettuce seeds because of their size. But what if I'm a rough handler with seeds and I like... Well, you can you can always have your, your uh, seeds uh, pelleted for sure. Because well, then I can handle them with my hands and I can have my kids plant my seeds for me and my grandkids plant my seeds for me, right? 
Yeah, that is not a recommendation for someone with ten acres, though, because you'd be no, no, no. I know it was just <laughs> yeah. You don't want yeah. your kids running your farm. No, no, no slave labor, please. Again, the 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 number of seeds would be astronomical. So so deciding on what your end crop is and then developing uh, a plan for what genetics to use. Um, you know, is really very important. Now, and we'll, we're going to do a show on some alternative techniques and grafting is one. So instead of raising your own seedling plants, some growers opt to purchase seed, uh, excuse me, purchase seedlings from other uh, nurseries, which is totally valid. And we can talk about that. And then some growers will graft. So instead of just simply planting a seed and growing a seedling of a certain variety and then planting it out and growing the plant outright, they will actually use rootstock from one type of tomato and they will graft it onto the plant of another type of tomato and they'll they'll so do similar that for, to the apple business right it's exactly the same yeah so certain rootstock tomatoes there's certain varieties that have very strong roots that are very disease resistant but they don't produce a lot of tomatoes and they can graft that to a variety that produces high yields of really good quality tomatoes and suddenly you have a tomato plant that is very productive, but also has some of the qualities that you wanted in the rootstock, like disease resistance or nutrient absorption. So, so grafting, uh, not not a technique that I would recommend for a small so scale. Can, so can I take a, a pepper plant and put it on a, a rootstock of a tomato? I figured you'd ask something like that. I haven't seen it done yet effectively. Can, but, we, can we do you know, some Frankenstein vegetables? Is uh, you, you know the audience is going to want to hear that. Uh, what I'm going to recommend is I'm going to recommend everybody go out and try it. And send us your photographs of your results, and we'll put yeah, it out please. on social media. Please, if uh, you can tell a tomato it needs to be a pear, uh, let me know if, if it if it happened. Excellent. So, um, so certainly, uh, once we've selected our seeds, we want to start with germination. And you know, people they ask a lot of questions about to tomato production in the greenhouse. What are the temperatures that we want to use? What type of relative humidity, etc. And I always want to step them back and say, well, let's talk about germination because without strong germination, without strong seedling or propagation production, without any of those things, you're never going to have high quality, high yielding crops, especially with something like a tomato, which grows for a very long time. Any uh, imperfection in the growing process, any damage to the crop, any um environmental condition or nutritional condition that's outside the realm is going to affect that crop for months to come and the plant may never fully recover. So everything you do from day one is critically important. So, so Even I if you start- prune, right? Like I, I know people that are like, I want no leaves on my tomato plant. I want it all focused on the, the fruit. And I'm like, there's a bo- no, you can't do that. Like there's a certain amount you have to leave like the, all the suckers. Yes, I can see remove all the suckers. Is that the proper term for 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 what I'm saying? Yeah, side shoots, suckers. You know, growing up on a farm, tobacco and tomatoes always suckering them was a job and removing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. So I'm not saying it wrong. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 managing the the crop is right. So so we have to start with germination. Proper germination temperatures. Every crop has kind of an ideal uh, germination. So so for tomato plants. Again, we've already started to talk about growing media. So we have to look at our propagation media, which has to be very compatible. So if we're growing in rock wool, we don't really want to start our seedlings in perlite and then trans, 
plant them over at some point into a different media. We always want to start with the same. So let's just say for the sake of argument, we're growing in cocoa fiber. So we have cocoa fiber propagation blocks, and there's some really great uh, products out there. I really like the, the Jiffy uh, four by four, four inch square propagation cube. So we, we want to start our tomato seedlings and we want to start them right away with 100% relative humidity, proper temperatures, 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And we want to get really robust, quick. And if it, if it is cooler months like this time, there's also heating pads that you can put underneath with the thermostat. Please 100%. do not use a heating pad without a thermostat. And, and know your grandma's old heating pad that she used for her back is not the same heating pad I'm talking about. You can look yeah. for a horticulturist heating pad. If your mom is mad because you stole her electric blanket for your grandma, <laughs> it's going to be a big problem. Yeah. So at germination, you the, the temperature is critically important. And I'll tell you why. So if you, let's say for the sake of example, you just want to put it in your greenhouse, your greenhouse is kind of cold, or you want to put it in, in a warehouse and the temperature is, let's say, 55 or 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That is less than optimal. So a couple of things are going to happen. Germination is going to become slow and irregular. If it's too hot or too cold, it can even go into what's called thermodormancy. So they, they may not germinate at all. But certainly, if anything that you do that slows down the germination process, already right there, even under perfect conditions, you have microbes, anaerobic especially, um, uh, fungal and, and bacterial pathogens that are waiting to attack that seedling. So you may have pythium or fusarium, and those are generally uh, uh, diseases that will thrive at really excessively high or excessively low temperatures and low oxygen. So we want to make sure when we're germinating, we have maximum oxygenation and ideal temperatures for that crop, because we want that seedling to germinate as quickly as possible, be as healthy and robust as possible. From and, if day you, one, and if you're looking for things to move fast, I always say consistency with temperature is key. Keep, that's why you having one of those heating pad with the thermostat, yep. you know, the fancier those thermostats are, the better. If you can spend a little bit coin on a really nice one, please spend it. It's really yep. worth it. And bottom heat is, is really effective. So we want to make sure that those tomato seedlings are started and they are off and running. Um, and again, in those optimum environments, that's a great time to add to your growing medium beneficial microbes. There are different over-the-counter products that you can get, the, um, trichoderma and streptomyces and things like that. Really, really important to get them started early. So they're colonizing the root zone and they're providing benefits as opposed to just kind of leaving things to chance. So, Do, do you sing to your plants, Joe? You know, you I don't. Opera I would tell them. If I sang to them, that would they would. Do you play some Led Zeppelin for them, I think, right? Well, I might play them a little music, yeah. And they, <laughs> but uh, no singing uh, for sure. <laughs> The um, so, so the environment, we want it perfect from day one. It's no different than raising a baby. The, you know, the, the, the environment and everything around it is critically important. So th things like your seedling production and your germination should never be an afterthought. This should be job number one. So, so we want to provide a good environment. And, and then basically as emergence happens, we want to be, begin to expose them to light, but maintaining high levels of humidity, good temperatures all the way through. And, and once we're now producing a, a small seedling plant, we want to, again, make sure that we start feeding right away with an appropriate nutrient solution. So this means using a nutrient formula that's designed specifically for tomatoes and for the vegetative portion. So this tomato now is not 
focused on producing fruit. This tomato is basically forming its leaves and its shoots and its root systems. So that's what it's focusing on. Just like a head of lettuce, it's focusing on the vegetative portion. So our nutrient solution needs to be designed that way for uh, in terms of strength. When I talk with lettuce growers, people sometimes will ask me if we grow the lettuce seedlings at a certain uh, nutrient level, a certain EC, and then increase that concentration as the plants get larger. And I always say no, because basically while the plants are using less nutrient, you, you still want to have the same available nutrients available for absorption. Because basically, again, the, the lettuce head is growing its whole life in that vegetative state. When we're looking at tomatoes, this early stage is the vegetative state. So we want to feed accordingly, but but we're going to later, when we start producing fruit, we're going to change some of that in the environment. Now, okay, the so what happens with the humidity as it goes from, okay, so I'm at, I'm at max uh, humidity for my seedling germination stage. Yep. At what point is it not a seedling and doesn't need the humidity? That's the most asked question. Yeah. So basically once the root system begins to form, uh, if the environment and the nutrition are are on where they're supposed to be, basically the plant is becoming self-sufficient. So it is absorbing all of its water and nutrients through its root system. So you want to encourage that root development. So right, right there, right away, as soon as you're exposing the plants to, to sunlight or to some type of light source, now we want to basically start driving that plant, utilizing the proper temperatures in, in relative humidity. So for example, um, as soon as we expose our tomato seedlings to light, we want to grow them at around 75 degrees Fahrenheit, more, more or less. And when we're growing at 75, for proper vapor pressure deficit, for proper transpiration, 65 to 70% relative humidity is, is pretty much where we want it to be. And we want to start moving the air. So now we've taken them out of the germination chamber and they're into the grow space, whether they're in the greenhouse or a propagation house or, or what have you, you are now raising baby plants. And so now you are suddenly shifting over to properly managing your irrigation, your nutrients and your physical environment. So temperature, air movement, everything we've talked about in the greenhouse, light, all very, very important. And then from the seedling stage to the, to the, to the vegetation stage, there should be more spacing throughout. Uh, the, the more big, the bigger the plants are getting, the more room they need to uh, to it's grow a, wider, or else they'll start growing more narrow. Right? Exactly. That's an excellent point. So, what we always want to think about is our tomato seedlings. We want nice, short, wide plants. So, basically, you want your tomato seedling to be more like a sumo wrestler than a basketball player. We don't want tall, stringy seedlings 